0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers.
1: This week on Science for the People, we're talking to two guests who have some very different areas of expertise, but what they both have in common is death. Enjoy! Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm here with Simon Davis, a Washington, D.C.-based writer who currently spends most of his time writing about death and other morbid things for Vice in a column called Postmortem. Welcome, Simon. Hi, Desiree. Now, uh, maybe a little bit of background. How did Postmortem get started?
0: So um, I was writing for Vice uh, last year for uh, different things. And I came across an article in the Washington Post about exploding corpses, uh, which caused caskets to explode. And it was, it, was, it was very brief. It didn't go into a whole lot of detail, but I just thought, wow, I mean, this, this happens? Like, this isn't, uh, this isn't uh, some kind of weird movie? It's a thing? Uh, so I looked into it, and I asked my editor then advice, who uh, interestingly was the night editor so he was actually working nine a.m. to five p.m. Tokyo time, but based in Los Angeles. Oh Lord! <laughs> and he loved it. He loved the idea, and his words were, "No amount of gory detail is too much." So I thought, okay, well, I can get into this. All right, you know, if I've got the okay for that, let's let's do it. And so that's how the first piece you see there with uh, exploding corpses uh, came to be, and. Then uh, there were a couple a of couple books that came out towards the end of last year. Uh, one was Caitlin Doughty's uh, Smoke Gets in Her Eyes, and the other one was Atul Gawande's Being Mortal that did very well and were actually really great books. So I, I talked to those authors too. And you know, once you had three, it wasn't yet a column per se, but around December, I was asked to come up with a topic for a recurring column. And I threw out a few ideas, and the only one they really cared for was death, because it just so happened that I had done three on that anyway. Well, now what I find so interesting about these
1: is there's an obvious underlying sort of science and evidence bent here. I'm, I mean, the pieces are definitely, as you said, they're they're morbid and they're very entertaining. But you obviously have a love for the more sciencey side of death. Yeah, because that's that's the real side. Well, then how do you write about that in a compelling way uh, while introducing science, but but
0: also making it uh, engaging? Well, you get into the detail, and you don't know, use euphemisms. And uh, my experience has, has been that people are just interested. It's like, you know, you have a corpse, which is a body, and it, it used to be a person, but not anymore. But it's there, and it does stuff. And it's just an interesting thing that people are often fascinated by. Is writing about death different than writing about uh, not death, I guess? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Kind of. So, writing about the dead, per se, uh, there's a really great distinction that uh, somebody I talked to, Paul Cousinaris, that he said, there's death and there's the dead. And death is, you know, sort of the broad topic, but the dead are, you know, the actual, the dead. So, writing about the dead to me is, is just a very straightforward process, and everybody who I've ever uh, read or talked to that deals with grief because usually that's where you know there's a possibility for somebody to be very sensitive says no euphemisms, and that's what I do go into detail I, I don't believe that a dead body is something dirty or sinful or whatever it just it is so i I try to have a kind of a stoic attitude about the whole thing and be explicit, and where appropriate, respectful. How do you
1: avoid being exploitive while still being
0: explicit? Because that's a real possibility when, when death is your beat. Um. So respect the feelings of the living is, is basically the thing. So it's obviously, it's one thing when you're talking about the dead in general, and it's, it's, it's not somebody who's named or whatever. And it's another thing, of course, when it's somebody's mother, right? So... You just try to uh, be aware of that. Um, you know, there are things that are universal about the experience of uh, being dead, if you will. Uh, those are there. Those are quite. You know, those are going to happen to everybody, and uh, people want to know about that stuff.
1: Well, there's a good example of this. You wrote an article called How Google Searches Influence Suicides. So sure. maybe, maybe give us a bit of an overview of that article.
0: Okay, so, yeah, that actually was one where I I did make a conscious effort to be very careful, Um, but not because of uh, the topic of death, per se, but because suicide is a very tricky subject to write about. And, you know, there's guidelines about it. Uh, We were very careful to include a disclaimer at the bottom uh, for the suicide hotline, which uh, is is, is sort of a best practice uh, for media guidelines, which unfortunately not everyone follows. So there was that, but it was more a concern about uh, contagion risk and people who might be prone to suicide reading this and being more encouraged. So yeah, and for, for that topic, there, there was definitely a very conscious effort on my behalf to not, for example, include screenshots that would indicate specific ways that one could commit suicide. So, I don't, I don't remember exactly how the idea came to me. But Google autocomplete is kind of a thing that people love to hate in a way because it's very helpful. But on the other hand, there's certain searches where you get these autocompletes that are kind of disturbing sometimes or just very, hilar- or just very hilarious. And there are certain searches where you might get encouragement to, to do something that you hadn't thought of. So, uh, a tricky thing is... If you, if you type in how to commit suicide, and then it adds by, for example, and then you start getting specific methods, and then it starts getting into, well, which method is more effective? So there's this really odd line of, okay, what happens if you're just looking for information? And what if you're actually trying to do it? Right. And how does, can Google know? <laughs> uh, what would it do if it did know? But... When I was looking into uh, research that had been done on it by scientists, there were things that indicated that a lot of people do research online for this sort of thing. So it's, there's a lot of interesting ethical considerations about, you know, what is information? What is encouragement?
1: And see, that's why I feel like there's a bit of a, a different mindset necessary when you write about these kind of topics, because I, as a reader, I really wanted to know the exact search terms because mm-hmm. I am curious like that, but but it's definitely far more responsible not to include them. But so how exactly do we know that search terms and and them auto-completing like that? Do we know if it actually does influence suicides? Is there any evidence of that?
0: There was one study that I looked at where they interviewed I think 24 different people and that had attempted because obviously, if um, they were successful, and they couldn't, but they they had attempted, and they just asked them. They said, "Hey, um, uh, where you know what you had done? Where did you where you come up with this idea?" They just did a deep dive into you know their whole research experience, right. and it was a variety of things. And I should say that actually, in that study, they even they redacted specific methods, specific searches that they had done. Google searches, I don't want to give the impression that it was like the thing that influenced it. It was just one aspect of where they got their ideas. And it w- and often was not them actively looking for information. It was just, you know, they read an article in the news about somebody who had jumped off a building or something. And then that stuck with them.
1: Well, okay. So enough about that, because I want to give people yeah. a sense of the diversity of topics yeah. that you cover. So that, yeah. you've written a piece called the space race for lunar funerals. Tell us about that.
0: There is a, a small subset of people who can afford and have the desire to send a part of themselves into space. Typically, that would be a like a gram of cremated remains because space travel isn't really a thing for the living and it's not, <laughs> it's not cheap for the dead either. So there was an announcement recently that there was a company called Elysium Space That announced that uh, they would be partnering with a a different company that is part of Google SpaceX competition to launch a Mars uh, lander, a private, uh, a privately funded Mars lander. And so they want to. They are a provider of of services for people that want to put like a gram of, of of cremated remains and put it on a spacecraft that will land on the moon. So now, that's that's one option. Yeah. <laughs> Is this hypothetical? Like, has this
1: been done before, sort of?
0: Yes, it has. So th- that's the interesting thing. So the announcement was, oh, hey, we are going to make this a reality. Meanwhile, there was a different company that in the late 80s had actually put, uh, like, I think an ounce of the cremains uh, of, of a scientist that – had worked on the space program, but because of a health condition could not go himself and his widow got NASA to include a vial of, of his cremated remains on a NASA space shuttle that went to the moon and I believe by design the the spacecraft was lodged into the moon so it wasn't it wasn't like a rover that was meant to go and come back uh, so his remains are on the moon so technically it's been done
1: so so how exactly does this work with these two companies like if, if i wanted to do that with my body what is the
0: process so you uh you you would obviously call them up um there is a fee which they the, the the sticker price is twelve and a half thousand dollars like i said it's not cheap right you make a reservation with them i don't know if they take payment up front or not and when the flight is scheduled then you you make the final arrangements the 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 thing about space burials in general is that obviously it's not like commercial aircraft where there is uh specific <laughs> uh, um, time. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, Hey, you know, when it's leaving, we'll let you know. Why do I find this so creepy? Creepier than other kinds of funerals? I guess because it's out there. You know what I mean? It's like w- with a, with a regular burial, you know, they're in the ground. You know what I mean? Whereas this is like, you know, the way gravity works and whatnot. It's always there. Although I I personally, you know, the idea of like, you know, you can look at the moon. And if you know that someone you love is there, like, you know, if you bury someone in a a cemetery, you can't look at that at night, can you? But you can look out your window and look at the moon, that person's there. I mean, it sounds like I'm selling their service. I'm not not endorsing them. But there's a coolness factor to that. I think if they could send the whole amount
1: of remains, it would be less creepy to me. I guess part of the problem is they only send a little bit.
0: That seems odd. I don't know why. It's expensive. I mean, you know, you can uh, you can probably pay them to do you know fifty vials, Bulk right? Bulk I mean, This you, is you, not could, right. you could charter your own rocket if you wanted to. I think it's more creepy to to send it on un- to send a body on personally.
1: Oh no, definitely. Okay, we're <laughs> in agreement on
2: that. Science for the people is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now,
1: back to the show. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to writer Simon Davis about Postmortem, his series on death at vice.com. Okay, now another piece you wrote was How Bodies Were Buried During History's Worst Epidemics. Uh, and you compared three epidemics to show how the way that we deal with bodies influences how we view death. And I, I really like this piece. It was particularly insightful. So uh, do you want to walk us through it?
0: Yeah, so I examined the the Black Plague in London uh, during the, the Middle Ages. Uh, I examined the Spanish flu pandemic 1918 through 1919, which actually a lot of people don't even know was a thing because it was around World War One, even though it killed more people than World War One, and the recent Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And what it being a death column, uh, I wanted to, to look at a couple things. One, exactly how these epidemics spread while they're active. You know, what does that look like if you're on the ground at the time? Mm-hmm. Terrible as it is, you know, how does it differ from normal times. And two, how how it made people look at the subject of death differently, right? Because you know, if during the during a non-epidemic uh, period if you will, you get used to people dying of old age or an accident, you know, there's I mean there's a depressing sort of regularity to it. On the other hand, if you have a situation where there's a mass outbreak of disease that really disrupts that whole continuum. So with, for example, the, the Black Plague in London, it actually changed their perception of it. I mean, this was, a, this was during the Middle Ages. Uh, Christianity was obviously the dominant religion, but London was a much, much smaller city. I think it was in the tens of thousands of people. Uh, so when you have a few thousand people at, at a time that die all at once and their bodies turn black at a time when medicine isn't really <laughs> what it is today, it really people start really reconsidering things. So there are, re- there are records of, before the Black Plague, people using cemeteries as playgrounds, as just any sort of other sort of communal space, the church having kind of a matter-of-fact you know, view of the whole thing. Whereas after the plague, after they had to deal with things like, oh, crap, the cemeteries are full, we have to build new cemeteries for the dead, you start to see religious art that starts to show death as kind of the villain – uh, so that was so these sort of changes in perception are what i was what I was interested in exploring uh with the the Spanish flu epidemic, which was huge in the United States, but it worldwide it killed thirty to fifty million people so I mean this is a really, really horrible thing, and it was in a space of like a year, a year and a half exactly, yeah, and you know you think flu i mean we talk about flu killing people, and it still does <laughs> you know millions and millions of people uh is kind of something we haven't had uh, since then. So that was a situation where it was really, really terrible, um, at the time. However, when, when they, when they looked at, uh, historical documents shortly thereafter, um, there wasn't really an acknowledgement of it. There was also at the same time, a conscious effort by the, by the authorities to withhold the extent of what was going on, presumably just for people's morale. I mean, that's, you know, they, they figured, denying that, you know, things were terrible as they were, would probably be better for society. Right. Um, and then with the the Ebola epidemic in Africa, it's one of those very few uh, diseases where the body itself remains contagious for a good two weeks. And in West Africa, a lot of the burial customs involve being very touchy-feely with the dead body. And so, you know, there were estimates of something like 20% of new Ebola cases being at funerals or just people coming in contact with dead bodies. So a huge part of the humanitarian response was to actually get people to to not do that, um, but at the same time to be respectful and in order to ensure that they're cooperating. Okay, one more, uh, because this article covered an angle on
1: assisted suicide that I had not even remotely recognized. Uh, Mm -hmm. The piece, should we stop using the phrase assisted suicide? So maybe start out by giving us some background uh, on the controversy around what I am going to call for the moment
0: assisted suicide. When I was writing the article on Google searches, I saw that there was a small subset of people who would use the term suicide. And they were clearly not looking for themselves. They were looking to help either somebody else or they were typing in assisted suicide. And that was kind of a qualitative difference to somebody who maybe was depressed and was actually looking at it for themselves. It was more around the topic of how to end someone's life in as painless a way as possible. Right. So there's advocacy around this. And in the U.S., there are... Two organizations, and one of them is Compassion and Choices, which had actually, when I spoke to them, they told me that, oh, hey, by the way, we're actually launching a site called "It's Not Assisted Suicide" because a lot of people type this in, but we don't like to use that term. I'm paraphrasing what they said. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, what's wrong? You know, then I start to think, you know, what's wrong with that term? And it's uh, the controversy is basically this. On the one hand, you have the sort of literal definition of suicide, which is to take uh, to take my own life. Okay, and somebody—it it could be argued that somebody who um, is looking for life-ending medication, who is terminally ill, is literally doing that. And a lot of media organizations will say, "Okay, that's a form of suicide. Anybody assisting with that, be it a doctor or a layman." Is assisting in suicide. On the other hand, you have people who say, "Well, wait a second. Um, I'm co- I'm I'm going to die anyway, and I just want to make it painless, and I don't want to die. So, to me, I'm I don't consider myself suicidal. So, how do you balance those two? And it's 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 not as straightforward as 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 one might think, in my opinion, because the literal definition. You know, you could argue the literal definition of uh, of homicide from a medical uh, examiner' point of view is to end someone's else's life, right? Mm. Well, okay. What if you're in a hospital and the doctor turns off the uh, the respirator after you know a medical directive of some sort? Now, 30 years ago, th- that was actually controversial. That was like, okay, that maybe that's homicide you're, you're literally, you know, you're ending someone's life. Right. But nowadays, you know, we've kind of, we've changed our perception of the whole thing. So the case of people who are terminally ill, who are six months away from dying and who are mentally competent enough to ask for a medication that will end their life, uh, sooner or at their control anyway, it's kind of seen in that sort of context.
1: Well, there's, there's also some, some real tangible reasons to to change the language around that, the, the communications angle, because surveys that have been done, according to your article, uh, yeah. far more people are supportive of aid in dying than they are of assisted suicide.
0: That's true. Yeah, they are. The only downside of that is most people, aid in dying is not a term that most people use. So when people are just trying to find out information they don't really search for that but yeah it's it's definitely a term that that makes people more comfortable uh with it because it is a it is a political topic uh there's only three states that have laws on the books uh that allow what i just described and so there are other states which like massachusetts for example and i believe new hampshire where it did go to the ballot And it lost. And the other side, which is typically religious groups, uh, disability advocates, and a lot of the medical establishment, though that's changing, uh, will call it assisted suicide because there is kind of a stigma to the word suicide and indeed the the action of suicide.
1: Well, there's also uh, another legal aspect here, the, the fact that insurance companies don't like to pay out for suicides.
0: That's true yeah and so the laws as they exist in the US are that if you are if you if you take advantage of the law and you are prescribed this medication that the death certificate will not say that so that's part of it too yeah
1: there's another perspective that is incredibly interesting to me because thinking about it, the phrase assisted suicide, it's actually fairly insulting to people who have debilitating, untreatable illnesses. Uh, there was a quote that you used that very much changed my perspective. It was from uh, Brittany Maynard, a 29-year-old woman who was diagnosed with brain cancer, and she already has obtained uh, that life-ending medication. And she said, I've had the medication for weeks. I am not suicidal. If I were, I would have consumed that medication long ago. I do not want to die, but I am dying. And I want to die on my own terms. And for me, that's, that's a powerful reason to never use the phrase assisted suicide again.
0: Well, I will say this. So I've, I've just described, again, very specific circumstances, okay, which are, again, you have six months to live, uh, you're mentally competent, and you are physically able to procure life ending medication and to administer it this is a very small subset of of people now it's it's a very these people definitely need to be helped and i'm i'm personally supportive of that but it gets trickier when you go outside of the us context and you look at for example switzerland where it over there the law says you can help someone to kill themselves to commit suicide and the only restriction is that it is not done for selfish purposes. Uh, so there it actually is assisted suicide. You can't, you know, you can be in good health, not terminally ill and go to a a clinic there and you, you would get seen by, you know, some of their specialists just to, I, I guess, certify that, uh, you know, you you understand what you're doing and they would give you life ending, uh, medication and that would be it. But I mean, you know, there was a woman from the UK who, I think she, she was she reached a certain age and she said, you know what, I've been a nurse. It's downhill from here. It's not worth it for me. To me, that is assisted suicide, and to most right. people that is. Right. This
1: is a this is a complicated issue and I love that there's a series that is uh that is digging into this fantastic series, Simon. Thank you for doing it. And thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And that was Simon Davis, author of the Postmortem series on vice.com. And you can find more of his work at the link on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And if you happen to be in the neighborhood of our website, do please click the links to everywhere we exist on social media or to iTunes where you can download past episodes or subscribe to the show. You are also gently and pleasantly encouraged to click the link to Patreon, where we will happily accept your support, and by that I mean money. To all of you that already donate, uh, please accept my high five, virtually.
2: Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show.
3: Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Rachel Burks, an analytical chemist working as a visiting assistant professor in the Midwest. She's also an active science communicator, and you can find her tweets by searching for Dr. Rubidium on Twitter. Ray, it's always good to have you back.
2: It's great to be back. Thank you.
3: Okay, so you wrote an article for American Scientist about the different tools forensic scientists use to find dead bodies, and you know how much we like to talk about death and science (laughs) on this show. (laughs) Yes, it's it's one one thing we have in common. (laughs) Uh, So first of all, um, just to kind of set the stage, why might we need to find a dead body? I mean, quite typically, we hear about the dead body's already found; that bit's done, um, and they can get on with trying to figure out who, how the dead body got that way. But in some cases, we actually need to find the body first. Can you maybe give us a few real world examples of when these kinds, when we might have to look for one?
2: Sure, whenever, you know, you never have someone who's committed a killing, a murder, uh, whether it's one other person or a mass killing, one of the main ways that people try to cover that up is, well, nobody, no crime. In fact, that was a cliche in, in legal systems around the world for a really long time. It's, it's fairly rare to actually go through a complete kind of adjudication without having a body. It does happen. There have been successful cases. Um, but if you don't find a body, um, either you can sometimes, uh, you don't know if a crime has even been committed. Uh, you can't prove that one's been committed. You can't prove that a murder's been committed. There's various reasons why people would want to cover that up, whether it's person-on-person crime or in some cases where you've had, say, mass graves. Uh, a few have been found in, in the Mexico this last year. Uh, you've got an example that I wrote about in the article um, about uh, the disappeared, uh, which was an IRA related crime. Uh, and so you just had people who you knew were gone and maybe presumed dead, but you couldn't really prove it. You needed to find their remains. Um, and not only for, you know, kind of criminal reasons, but also because uh, family you know, wants to know what if you know what has happened there's always this big uh, you know unanswered question if you if you don't have a body that can really leave a hole in an explanation and so those are really the reasons why you you kind of need to get to literally the bottom of it um, and and wherever that may be and people try to cover them up in, in all kinds of ways so we need to need to find the body to then kind of to the what happened to this person and then who did it that's usually our biggest question too
3: so uh, when we're looking for a body what kinds of areas are we typically looking in um presumably searching a smaller area is generally easier than a larger one just going off the cuff here
2: It can be. I mean, I think that it depends, too. Are you talking about kind of person-on-person violence? Are we dealing with some type of a, a mass disappearance, mass killing? Um, then you might, you know, you have it would have different areas that you would want to search. Um, and, you know, when's the last per- time the person was seen? Did anyone remember seeing them leave their property? Or, you know, are they adjacent to an empty field? I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things where... Um, It really does depend on kind of the other details of the case. But definitely the smaller your search area, the easier it is to use tools quickly and efficiently. Um, And we've got a lot of different things at your disposal. And it could be as easy as if you're just looking at someone's backyard, right? It could be as easy as saying, wow, that looks like the ground's been disturbed and uh, they're not a very good gardener. Like it really could be that easy where... It's that you just look around the person's yard or whoever it it could be the person who's disappeared, the person that you suspect, and just look for visual disturbances, which you know the explanation is is non-existent or is absurd, and then you would go, you know, you would just start digging, and and of course when forensic scientists start digging, it can be very similar to anthropologists or archaeologists or. Even paleontologists, you know, we're, we're gonna dig out, you know, one quarter of a teaspoon at a time sometimes to, to see how much information we can find. But it can be that easy to look around and say, that looks like a grave. It's about five feet long. It's about, you know, it really, it, it can't, and it can be that easy too when you do. And I'm sure on TV we've all seen those images when there's a search going on where there's just a line of what seems like dozens and dozens of people, right, and they're walking through some area quite slowly. Um, they're not only looking for, you know, physical evidence, but they're also looking for just visual disturbances in the ground, anywhere that, you know, someone could have attempted to hide a body
3: Okay. So, obviously, if it's very clearly the ground has been disturbed, the ground is people-shaped that's been disturbed, uh, and you have some some (laughs) idea that maybe that is a body under there, then that seems like a a nice, easy setup for you. You just start digging in that spot. But if maybe you're talking about a whole backyard and there's no obvious – you don't sort of stand on the deck and find the obvious spot to dig, do you just – Excavate an entire backyard, or what? What's the next step in that situation where there isn't necessarily a nice um, metaphorical flag pointing right here? Yes,
2: I think it depends too on what tools are at you know someone's disposal. But you know, one of the the most standing tools that people have used are uh, human remains dogs or search and rescue dogs, which are specially trained to uh, scent to human remains. And they can do uh, an amazing job if they're, you know, of course, searching an area where there shouldn't be that much other scent of, of decomposition and decay. So, you know, in, in a typical backyard or, you know, human remains dogs are used on boats to search for bodies underwater. They're used, you know, on, and huge search areas of, you know, of parks and of, you know, backwoods and all of these things. And they do, they can do a really good job of, of, you know, honing in on an area that, that should be looked after, you know, much more completely. So even in a backyard where you don't see any visual disturbances, you know, calling in a, calling in a uh, a human remains dog could, could really help. Um, and also then, you know, if you, if you dial it up a notch after, you know, the human remains dogs, you can go to probably the most famous technique that's been on a lot of the, you know, CSI top shows, which would be ground-penetrating radar. Um, and, and what that's going to do is, unlike CSI shows where it shows like beep, 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 and you see an outline of a body, <laughs> <laughs> it's not that good of an imaging technique. But what it does tell you is, hey, there's a real disturbance underneath here that maybe visually the person did a good job of smoothing out the surface so that you, you can't really tell. But also you want to think about that there have been, you know, several crimes where people are quite, you know, with it and they are gonna pick construction areas where, you know, they know something is you know, a construction project is happening or the ground should always look disturbed. So they are very strategic in when when they do a body disposal. So if you have something like a parking lot that's gone down, um, then that's gonna really present a challenge for a lot of things. But if you use ground penetrating radar and you say, Okay, well, you know, four feet down there's this this real disturbance in the soil that you just couldn't have seen and, and maybe the dog did or did not alert to, then, then that would be, you know, especially if you're talking about you're going to need to rip up a floor or take apart a parking lot or, you know, or, or even in the case of just ordering a full excavation, uh, which will take a lot of time and a lot of uh, people hours, then that would be uh, another good thing that people could do.
3: So uh, when we're talking about ground penetrating radar, what what is it actually detecting? Is it detecting different types of of substances under there? Like a different like there's something in there that's not just concrete or not just soil? Are they detecting? Really,
2: all it's doing is it's throwing down some electromagnetic energy. So we're gonna you know throw down some some you know area of the electromagnetic spectrum. A lot of that we call light, um, and sometimes it's it's radio waves and if it, you know, we're looking at how it gets, it comes back to us or comes back to the receiver. And we're just looking for disturbances in the, in the comeback, in what's reflected back. And if there's, you know, a lot of disturbances, there's something, quote, big down there. Because there's lots of disturbances in soil, you know, just because it's soil. It's a very complicated mixture. But what you'd be looking for is, you know, the, the kind of dimensions of the disturbance. Does it seem to make sense with the environment? And, and of course, then you'd have to have, you know, geologists and, and, and a person who's familiar with the area and what's gone on there. But it can really tell you a lot about, oh, that's probably just, you know, it's a little thing. It's not going to be anything major or that's a huge disturbance. And that's something that we need to investigate. So the best it can do is, it's a good triaging technique. A lot of these are just ways so that we can minimize, you know, start shrinking and shrinking and shrinking down the area so that the search can be incredibly focused and we can put all of our best efforts and high, you know, kind of high intensity, high expense tools into the smallest area, which will hopefully lead to what we're looking for.
3: So as just a 30 second hypothetical, can a ground penetrating radar tell the difference between or could you tell the difference looking at uh, looking at what it showed you between like a person sized rock buried under the ground and a person buried under the ground?
2: Well, yeah, because a rock's um, composition would be very different. So if you had if you had the right scientist, and that's what's key too, is the tools have to come with the person who's an expert in using the tools. Uh, Just like, you know, a human remains dog has to come with a handler that's an expert at dealing with that dog. The same thing comes for using ground penetrating radar and someone who knows the area enough to know that... This is what the composition of the soil and the underlying rock and all and and the and the water content of the soil and and you know what's buried underneath. Um, all of that is going to be key. So so a lot of times these are all what are kind of called you know kind of geophysical techniques. The the folks that are doing this type of work are experts in geology. They're they're actually most of the time when this is done is not for kind of criminal reasons, right? It's for it's for other just, you know, scientific reasons to study the environment. So these geophysical techniques are, if they're done by those practitioners, they're going to definitely be able to tell and discriminate between a lot more things and say kind of your casual user saying, oh my gosh, that's you know, that's something major down there. And a, and a geologist might look and go, nope, that's the layer of limestone we expect. You know, I mean, that's, it's, it really is that um, they know enough about this area that they are going to be able to spot those differences. Just like, you know, a chemist will be able to look at, um, say, a chromatogram in a laboratory and know that this is important, this is less important, this we need to look at a little bit more.
3: So a lot of these tools aren't something that you can sort of hand off to a detective or a general forensics team. They will need some specialist behind them understanding and being able to interpret what they're seeing.
2: Yes, like any, you know, anybody with the right training and the background um, will need to use, you know, that, that machine, that tool, that technique. Um, And it's, you know, it's the same thing in, in conventional life. You know, I've got a friend who got a really fancy pants kitchen mixer, and I should not be put near that thing. (laughs) Um, But she's quite a good baker, you know, and so she knows what speed certain things should be on and what, you know, what sounds to me, what sounds like it's about to explode. She's like, nope, it's fine. You know, I mean, that kind of a just user expertise that comes with knowing the instrument and knowing how to interpret how it's working. And so, no, you certainly wouldn't want to um, put a tool where someone's got you know, just insufficient training um, to actually utilize the device to its maximum capability, and also where they they can overestimate what it's capable of. Um, and so, again, the best that any of these tools are going to be able to do is is focus the search in a smaller and smaller area. And it's still going to come down to a person is going to be digging a hole, and um, and a and a team of people is going to bring something up and that 's always what it comes back to is that at you know at the end of the day, a person is going to be doing the work. This is just a way to to minimize the work that the people do. I do
3: want to talk for a second about uh, human remains detecting dogs because it never really occurred to me I mean I knew they they were around, and I knew that people use them to find human remains. But I was sitting here and thinking, man, that means that human remains are somehow chemically different or smell different to dogs or can smell different to dogs than other types of remains, which I didn't really realize is that I'm assuming that's the case.
2: I think it can. I think there's always going to be, they try the training um, and there's extensive training for what are called HRD dogs or the nickname would be cadaver dogs, human remains detection dogs. And they go through uh, a lot of training and you know, part of what they get trained on is on human remains versus, say, especially if you're doing right, a big search in, say, a federal park, right, a national park, um, which happens, you know, we, we always hear those big high-profile cases where they're out doing a big big search. Um, you want to, I mean, you can see that, you know, to steal a, a line from a Disney movie, the circle of life would mean that you would have, you know, all kinds of remains out there, some big mammals and some small ones. And um, how do you discriminate? And so part of the training is to 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 try to do that using human remains. Um, but also, you know, there's the, the dog is going to alert to a particular scent. And again, that's when the human being would, would go in there. And you also would then have, you know, depending on the state of decomposition, you might also need to have, you know, an anthropologist who's going to be looking at bones or, you know, a medical examiner or something. You know, there's usually a team of people that are doing, you know, that kind of search. And the dog's job is just to alert to, you know, as many things as it's been trained to alert to. And um, and hopefully during that training, it's you know, its, it's focus has been on, on human decomp. And so they do incorporate that into the training. So there is an attempt to try and get them to differentiate specifically
3: human re- remains or go after specifically human remains.
2: There is and there's a lot of research on trying to not only with dogs but with what we call synthetic noses to find quote cadaveric uh, volatile organic compounds or VOCs or what is it about the distinct smell of death and and for us of course you know what is it about human decomp because a lot of you know protein based mammals or not even you know just fish any kind of uh protein is it it breaks down in, in a lot of way in the same fashion but we are made up of a bunch of other stuff right we've got we've got um fats in there and we've got other chemical compounds and how do they break up so there's been actually a lot of research trying to say okay what's the what's the distinctive scent for you know our cadavers remains so that we could not only train better HRD dogs, but also construct an electronic device, an instrument that would actually be able to sample uh, the air and and maybe even soil, you know, processing, you say, top point of soil, just, a, you know, a little bit from the top of something and be able to analyze it for these particular chemicals that would you know, like a dog, alert us to, hey, this is an area where let's spend a little bit more time here and take a, a, well, literally sometimes a deeper look.
3: Um, And a decomposing body also seems to change the chemical makeup of the soil around it. So uh, presumably there's some telltale signs that you could look for actually by taking a soil sample around an area that maybe a dog has highlighted or a disturbed area um, or an area that uh, maybe a penetrating radar has pinged that could help you understand what you're seeing or what you might, what might be under there before you start to dig?
2: Yeah, that's been some really interesting uh, research. I talked a little bit about it in the article. It's a PLOS One paper. And they did, they wanted to look at, okay, well, what would happen, you know, you have a, a human body, it's got a unique microbial community, um, and if that's kind of unleashed on the, the soil and in an environment, you know. Is that going to have any influence? Can Could we actually detect that? Or, you know, kind of what what would that do? Not just, you know, any old chemicals, but our unique microbes, because that might be a, like a signature almost, you know, if a, if a lot of proteins break down to the same stuff, maybe these microbes would be a way to really, really distinguish some things. And so, you know, what they did is they, they, buried, they buried some, a real small study, um, probably because it involved cadavers, and they can be... it's a tricky research model, Um, and they looked at different types of decay and monitored the soil above and and all around the body and and did some analysis on it. And what they found is, you know, they were a bit surprised, and so was I when I read the paper, is that the human-associated microbes actually persisted in the soils for surprisingly long times, they said. And so that could be a way that, you know, not only to maybe find a grave, but people do move bodies. They and maybe the the visual remains there was a body there at some point. Um, could could we say that, or was it moved, or you know? And also, if this is kind of in the wild, then you could have a scavengerist come by and and taken the body, but it was there. So there's a lot of scenarios where I could, I could think this would be important. And so to be able to say, hey, there, this is either it, dig deeper, or there, this was it, and, and that can provide a lot of clues too. That's really interesting.
3: So when you say uh, that the microbiome of a deceased person can linger for a surprisingly long time, what, what amount of time are we talking about?
2: Well, I think in the paper, they were looking at uh, days to weeks. Um, and they had kind of thought well as soon as you know it's it's not going to even last that long and um, and so they they were surprised that they found any of that and and I was really kind of surprised because I had been reading the paper from say beginning to end and I kind of assumed well like a lot of things I mean everything's decomposing it quite you know under certain weather conditions of course it dictates how fast things happen um, but I definitely when I started reading the paper I'm like well they're not gonna you know, I was thinking it was going to be the chemical VOCs that would be the interesting bit and to find that the human microbe had actually uh, uh actually stuck around for a while that they could say, No, no, this was this was the human microbe is still here. I thought that was really interesting because if you're talking about not only being able to find it, so and there's still I mean, this is all very preliminary work, so I don't wanna oversell it. But I definitely think it was something that should be pursued, especially if you're dealing with, uh, say, mass casualties or war crimes type thing, where it's not uncommon to have to find large mass graves in in really kind of remote areas, or when when bodies get moved, or in maybe even another scenario where people are buried and then then the the burial sites are in some way attempted to be destroyed. So. I'd be interested to see how the work progresses with a larger – hate to say this – with a larger data set because the data, of course, came from um, human cadavers in, in a lot of different environments to see if this is something that they see persisting um, because then then that's a test where you, know, you would almost take like a soil core sample and then analyze it and say, yeah, this would give you – this is kind of like a chemical – ground-penetrating radar, in a a way, gives you a real peek inside uh, what's going on, especially if you paired it with a human remains dog, uh, that could be a really powerful tool. So uh, just
3: entering the realm of wild speculation for a
2: second. (laughs) (laughs) Why not?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's fun. Um, (laughs) Is it possible that the microbiome is somehow part of the decomp process that
2: maybe we didn't realize? Ooh, well, that that I can't answer but it is it's interesting to me that the it's persistent in that it itself the the human associated microbiomes aren't aren't decomposing as at the rate as assuredly that the researchers thought they would and in fact you know the the researchers themselves say hey maybe they because they're persisting in soils maybe they do play a role in decomp and and We've known for a while that, you know, the kind of, well, bloating process or the gases that build up are, are part of the, of the decomposition and bacteria leaking all over and a lot of bacterial action um, involves the excretion of gases. So there, and maybe, you know, this microbiome is doing something and what it is doing, that's going to be part of, I think, the future research to keep an eye on. Um, but I think, you know, the, the authors suggest that this would be a good kind of biomarker and I think the work is really promising and it's, it's got to continue. I hope that they get, you know, they can continue this work if, you know, if the, if it's available to them and funding wise, because when you're trying to find what they call a clandestine grave, this could be, this is a, a chemical tool, another good chemical tool. There was a different group that looked at using, um, they actually treated soil with ninhydrin, and they got a color response. And so that was a way too to say, hey, this is this is something that you need to, to look at even more. And so this is even more discriminating because these are micro microbes that are associated with humans. The other chemicals, they could they they're not that closely, they could have come from something else. This kind of adds a a real layer of what could potentially be what we call discrimination, where you could really say, "Hey, this is this is a site of human remains, not just like you know a deer. This is something that we really need to go after." So I think it's promising.
3: Um, I'm just curious, uh, in general, how much about the science of decomposition and how it actually works? Do we know? Are we we pretty clear on the science there? or Are there still some big gaps in our knowledge about how that process works?
2: We're I mean, people have been studying decomposition and how to affect it and, and what to do with it for a really long time. We know a lot of information about um, human decomposition, but there's always more work to do. I think as our tools, what has has, drastically improved are our analytical tools to study that. And we're able to look at concentrations of all kinds of chemicals and, and biochemicals in a way we've never been able to do before. So even work that say experiments that were done, you know, maybe 50 years ago, we we just couldn't find the things because we didn't have the, the tool that would allow us to do that. So, you know, now is a really exciting time because we have this level of, of analytical tool and, you know, chemical kind of toys, if you will, at our disposal that we are finding out much more information, even if we were, were to go back and do some similar experiments. But kind of the order things happen we know quite a bit about, we even know about, you know, entomologists know the order of which, you know, critters are going to visit um, and, and all of that. And that's, but even that is affected by all kinds of conditions. And so, you know, we've all heard, especially if, you know, the two of us, we've heard of the body farm, you know, studying decomp and, and under various conditions and changing, you know, just one thing can, can really alter how things behave. And so, just like life, it death is one of those things that we can always find out new things about.
3: I admit that uh, I've always been really fascinated with body farms. Um, I, there's a part of me that kind of wants to visit one someday, but also a part of me that knows that that would probably be a bad idea. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I don't. That, I, I don't know if it's uh, one of those things where you're like, I'm just gonna stroll in for it. I can't uh, imagine yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, and so there's, you know, probably one of the uh, the most famous ones is at the anthropological research facility at the University of Tennessee. That's probably the the one that most people are, you know, kind of thinking of. And other folks have have done research in this. It's much more, you know, small scale research. Um, on this area and so I think that again with uh, with more analytical tools and research in that area we're finding out more and more about how to find things and also about how to say, because you know what we're most interested in is not just finding it, right? We want to find this person or their remains but we also want to know what happened here and so a lot of the research too is, is not just what, who you know is this the person, and then who is this person, um, if it's you know if, that, if that's undecided. But also, what happened to this person, and that all all it's a big mix of research that goes on is, is not only what what could the burial site tell you about about is it first of all a burial site, but also is what happened here, um, and that's really part of the research too. Is how much information can we can we extract. And because, you know, we want we want to know what happened here for a lot of reasons. There, there may or may not be criminal charges, but we want to know. Families want to know. Communities want to know. And so how much information, you know, can we get? There's something about someone who's missing that I don't know if there's ever closure. But I think you can get to the point where if you have an answer, it's better than not having one. Um, and I think that maybe that's why you know there's there's a, a real persistence by some folks in doing this work is they want to provide an answer instead of just this ongoing question of what happened to this person.
3: So just one last question while I've got you on the line. Um, we, you talked a little bit before about how the study we were talking about that looked into micro the microbiome um, was using human cadavers. And I would imagine that a lot of this research really ideally needs human cadavers to be able to do it in a way that is sort of most comprehensive and most complete. Um, but how difficult is it to do this research and to get the human cadavers in order to, to do it in a way that is... I guess, most obvious?
2: That could be a challenge. Um, I think, you know, any medical school or, you know, undergraduate facility that has an anatomy class, you know, arranging for human cadavers can, can be a challenge, but you have more and more people donating, you know, bodies to science. Um, and, and certainly, I know, I know a friend in particular who is planning to donate their body uh, to the body farm. And uh, we could certainly do that. Um, Another thing that people do uh, when this is a real challenge, because it can be, um, is that they try to use similar um, other animals. And so depending on the type of work uh, that's being done, uh, they'll use pigs, which are quite similar to humans. I don't know if we want to know that, but that's true. (laughs) Um, And so they'll... Uh, some work will be done in pigs. And like you're hinting at, it really does depend on what they're trying to do. Like with these researchers in the microbiome work is they really were looking at the human microbiome. So they had to use human cadavers. But if you were doing work, say, on the next generation of ground-penetrating radar, um, you could probably just, you know, use, say, large, if you wanted to kind of look at disturbance and look at kind of water density of a certain, maybe, you know, using a large pig would work. Um, so I think that it just really kind of, or if you're looking at insect activity, um, but it wasn't super critical that it was human remains, maybe you'd also be okay using. But again, the expert would know, okay, what are we trying to find here? Um, and, and what would what would work as... The if if you know the best model, because uh, there's lots of times where we can't for various reasons uh, work on the 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 model, right, the thing we're trying to study, but can we get as close as we can? And so that would probably be pigs would probably be, you know, one of the things that we could do. And and sometimes you can do it chemically. Um, there's you know two great chemicals we've given real super names to cadaverine and putrescine. They do smell like their names Um, is that from personal uh, uh, experience oh yes yes it will clear a room (laughs) Um, they definitely smell like that and uh, so you know they can be used depending on you know what again the application of the study is Um, I think that I think that sometimes you know people who are not us maybe uh, would think that the work is ghoulish and you know kind of creepy and I think in my mind I think of it as you know is that you're providing a service and, you know, the last thing that someone's going to do for this person or these people is to find them and to find out what happened to them. That is the last thing we could do. And it's probably the best thing we could do for the people that cared about them. And so in that, in my mind, that's not creepy Then you're providing a, a necessary service. And so maybe if more people thought, hey, this isn't creepy, this is actually kind of the last thing good measure uh then you know then we'd have a different view of this work it wouldn't be seen as ghoulish it would be seen as necessary
3: Ray, it's always lovely to have you here thanks so much for uh, coming on the show and for being interested in death for those of us who are as well
2: <laughs> <laughs> well thanks very much
3: If you want to learn more about Rachelle Burks, you can check her out on Twitter by searching for Dr. Rubidium, or by visiting the show notes for today's episode, where we'll have links to get you started. And you can find those show notes on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca.
1: Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rachelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell.